We can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, continuing through the book of Romans. And Bika says hello to everybody, misses you all greatly, and I'm eager to hear how her church attendance goes this morning. She's attending her sister's church up there in Toronto, and so it's always neat to get out and see what other churches are doing. But this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, we're in a uh, little series here in Romans 13, Church and State, um, Heaven Citizens and Human Government. And so uh, there's a lot to be said on this, so we're going to try to make some headway today as we plunge into the first seven verses. Last week served kind of as an introduction to this series and the chapter. So uh, follow along in your Bibles as I read the first seven verses. We probably won't get through all these, but we'll read them just to keep it in context. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you... Have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Last week, we began this little uh, series here and we realize that God has basically called us here to do two things be subject and to pay taxes and we began to understand that in this place in Romans we've been dealing with theology up until about chapter 11 dealing with justification and and all sorts of things about our salvation how we're saved how we're all in a sinful state before a holy God and we need his grace to be saved and he transforms us and then in beginning in verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, he begins to kind of unwrap because you know all this theology. And that's how Paul writes a lot of times. He'll give us all the theology right up front. If you look through the book of um, Ephesians, first three chapters, all theology. And then he says, here's how this applies. He does that over and over throughout his letters to us. And so it's kind of good in a way because it prepares us for what's coming. And so in verse 1 of chapter 12, he begins to kind of unwrap all that theology. He says, how should this affect your life practically? And he said, well, first of all, you have to understand you have a new relationship with God if you've been transformed by the power of the gospel. You don't have, you're not under God's wrath anymore. Now he can call you friend. And so you have a wonderful relationship with God. And as a result of that, that should cause you to have a life of service. And he goes through that in verse 12 or chapter 12. And then he says, as a result of that, it should affect the way that you deal with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, not only that, but it should deal with those outside of Christ. It should affect your relationship with those who aren't even Christians. 
A matter of fact, it should even go, he goes down further. It should even affect your Christian life, should even affect the way that you deal with your enemies. And Jesus gave us a wonderful example of that. And so he poured all that out to us. And then here in verse 13, he almost picks up where he left off. And he says, not only that, but it should affect your relationship with government. You know, nobody that I know of loves government. I mean, with just the word itself, it's kind of, oh, you think of bureaucracy, you think of waste, you think of corruption, you think of all kinds of things. And so we're asking this question, what is our role as Christians before our government? There are those within the Christian realm that believe, well, we have to do everything we can to elect the right people and get in there and infiltrate the swamp and make it all Christian, and then everything will be fine. And we can all sleep happily at night. Well, that's just not the case. As a matter of fact, some of the most outspoken, quote, Christian politicians over the years have been some of the worst examples and have ended in having to resign and leave office and all kinds of things because of affairs and torted things with their, their uh, finances and all kinds of things that went on. And yet, they were Christian. Now, I'm sure that there's some good Christian believers in there, and that's great. If God calls them to do that, that's wonderful. But at the same time, we don't look to government as the church to fix our problems. And for years, that's what the church has done. You had the moral majority, you had concerned women for America, all these people that think somehow that if you just put a Christian into office, then everything is going to be wonderful. And it affects the way that we look at government. Because there are some Christians who think, well, unless they're Christian, I'm not going to support them. So I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to be in subjection to them. And yet that flies right in the face of what Paul tells us right here. Now, do we have to agree with everything the government does and, and it says? No, but we're still in subjection to them. You can't change that. And so to start off this morning, I, I wanted to look at a couple things that are required of every Christian. These are not in your outline. They'll be up on the screen, I believe. Um, So you can write them down as we go. We'll go slowly. But required for every Christian when it comes to government. The first one there is to be subject, and we covered this a little bit last week, to the government unless it asks us to disobey God. In other words, there comes a point in time where I believe that sooner or later, even in the state of California, they're going to pass some kind of crazy law that says, you know what? And it's close. There's something in the works right now that's very close to wording just this way, that you can't speak out against immorality, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, abortion, without it not being some form of hate speech. And if you do that, guess what? We're going to pull your nonprofit status. And as a nonprofit, you don't have to pay taxes. So that's kind of a blessing financially for most churches. Well, when that comes down... To that decision, what do we do? Do we just shrug our shoulders and just go, well, okay. You know? Uh, or do we say, you know what? There, there's, there's a calling here that we're called to speak the truth, irrespective of the consequences. You know, we don't want to disrupt. We don't want to cause chaos. But sometimes, when the truth is spoken boldly and firmly, it does just that. Especially... To the unsaved. And it's, it has an odd effect sometimes on those people because they, even though you're speaking the truth, you're saying what God says, and 
and the average person would probably even agree with you. But we live in such a, quote, tolerant society today. They tolerate everything except Christian truth. When it comes to Christ, when it comes to morality, things like that, well, you can't say those kind of things. So the first point here is to be subject to the government unless it asks us to disobey God. Okay, And so we have to be sure that we understand what, what that considers. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, you can look that up if you want. I'll just read it for you. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's really... A summarization of what the government's role is. The government's role in our lives should be only this. To punish those who do evil and to protect and praise those who do good. That's what the government's role is. Now, unfortunately, we live in a country where the government has way expanded its boundaries. And they're doing a lot more than that. And we don't appreciate it. But even with that being said, we're still called to be in subjection to the government. Um. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered when they were called on the idea of preaching the gospel, things like that. It says, they said, we must obey God rather than men. Okay, now that's not giving a license for civil disobedience. I don't necessarily agree with that whole idea. You go out and march in the streets and... You know, you can see the the chaos that's a result of that. Now, I think as Christians, we're called to be in subjection to the government. But when it comes to a point where they're telling us to do something that clearly violates the word of God, that we have to say, you know what, I'm sorry. I'll bear the consequences. So, and I think there's a day coming in America, and I think Christians need to get ready for that. And it's, it's going to be scary because I don't think a lot of churches and a lot of believers will go down the road of not compromising. They will compromise for the sake of whatever benefits that they can get. So to be subject to the government unless it disobeys God. Secondly, we're called to pay our taxes. We see that right here in our text. We also see it in Matthew chapter 22. Um, They ask Jesus, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes? taxes to Caesar or not. See, they were kind of trying to back him into a corner and and catch him. But Jesus, aware of their malice, so they always asked these crazy questions, but Jesus saw right through all that, the smoke screen, he looked right at their heart, and he asked them, why are you asking me this? By the way, that's not a bad question to ask people when you've been witnessing to somebody for a long time. And, you know, maybe you're feeling, you know, it's not really taking root And sometimes as Christians, we want to try to force things on people. I always tell people, you know what? Back off. Have them over for dinner and don't even bring up Christ. Don't bring up the church. Don't bring up their sin. Don't bring up anything. Just be a friend and be nice to them and feed them. And wait for them to bring it up. Because hopefully you've been in prayer that God would create a a hunger in their heart to hear truth. And then when they bring it up, the mistake a lot of Christians do, you know, say you've been witnessing somebody for a long long time and and maybe they pushed you away some and so you've just kind of stopped and then they call you up or they want to visit with you and say, you know, I'm kind of interested in this. The mistake we make so many times is we we basically give them everything we got (laughs) with both barrels because we think, oh, this is... And and sometimes it's good to stop and really pray. And, And I always ask them the question when they ask me a question. You know, uh, individual down at the uh, 
coffee shop one time. We were talking about global warming and all this climate change stuff. And gave him some facts on the issue. And weeks later, he came back and he asked me a question. We kind of had a, not a heated argument, but we had a good, healthy discussion about it. And weeks later, he asked me, so you said this, you know. And I said, well, okay, I'll answer your question. But why do you want to know? You know, I wanted him to really kind of double down on, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say, rather than me just kind of spouting off. And so sometimes, you know, this is what Jesus did right here. He, he saw right through their hearts. And sometimes we can't do that. We don't know what's in somebody's heart. But sometimes it's good to pause when we're about to give somebody an answer and say, well, why do you want to know this? You know, I've shared the gospel with you several times. You never want to have anything to do with it. Why are you asking me this question now? Because you know what I'm going to say. I mean, you've heard it before, right? They've all heard it before if, if you've had any kind of long-term uh, witnessing relationship with them. And so Jesus here, he says, aware of their malice, he said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him into Nero, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, what? Therefore, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So you know what? The government is here to protect us personally, to protect our property, and they will do that when called upon. Um, and there, sometimes they do it maybe not the way they should or whatever, but that's what their role is. And so we need to be faithful in paying our taxes. Now, obviously, there are loopholes or all kinds of things. I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't give the government one more dime than what, they, what I owed them personally because I don't think they're a good steward of our, of our finances when we give it to them, especially when it comes to, you know, your tax dollars are going for abortions and all other kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay our taxes. All right, we're, we're called to do that. And... Uh, It'd be great to get this whole system down to something that's rather simple and uh, alleviate a lot of those major loopholes that only a lot of wealthy people can take advantage of. So, but anyway, we're called to pay our taxes. Thirdly, we're called to pray for government authorities. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he says, First of all, then, I urge you, and this is Paul speaking to Timothy, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Verse 2, he says, for kings and for all those who are in high positions, that has the idea of government, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we're called to pray for those in leadership over us when it comes to civil government. Um, And that's an important aspect. I remember talking to a news reporter about this a couple years ago, and and they said, well, don't you, when they canceled the, the city council prayer thing, she said, well, aren't you sad that they, they uh, canceled that, that prayer thing because of your prayer? I said, well, I, I'm not really sad. Um, I think it's unfortunate because they're in politics, and frankly, they need all the prayer they can get. But I also want to let you know that our church and people in our church don't have to come to a city council meeting to pray for you people. We're praying for you anyway, because that's what the Bible commands us to do. So that's one thing that we are commanded to do. It doesn't matter whether you agree with our president or not. You need to pray for him. Pray that God would give him wisdom. Pray for our vice president. Pray for the Senate, the Congress, the local city council, everybody. That's what we're called to do. That should be a, a check mark on your daily prayer list. Pray for these people. They definitely need it. Um, also, 
under that, I would say we need to be praying for our local police, our fire, those who assist us. Those are part of the civil government um, as well. So the fourth thing here, uh, not just uh, pray, but to grant proper honor to those. In um, first, first Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. See, this honor has to do with attitude. Okay, it has to do with what you're, you're really thinking about somebody. And as Christians, you know, we may disagree with somebody, but we still need to have an attitude of, you know what, even if we disagree with them on every moral issue, all right, we still need to be praying for them. We still need to honor them in the position that they hold. And so we need to do that. It's not whether they deserve it or not. All right, it's under the idea that God has put them in that position over us. Fifthly, to do right and to cooperate with government authorities whenever possible. Notice I put whenever possible. Um, Titus chapter 3 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. Where was that this last election? (laughs) I heard a lot of Christians speaking evil about a lot of people. I probably participated in it as well. We shouldn't be doing that stuff. It says, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Wow. I don't think any of us live up to that. Sixthly, to evangelize and disciple government leaders when possible. Have you ever thought of this? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, so many times we're criticizing these politicians and yet we've never even prayed once for their salvation. We've never prayed that God would somehow break them in their own, their own uh, life to the point where they need to turn to a holy God and ask for forgiveness for their sin. You know, we're called... To do just that. We're called to when we have the opportunity to speak up for Christ. And that includes government leaders. And then the last thing here. Um, uh, to evangelize disciple government leaders. And you think of Paul's example with, with Felix and Festus and Agrippa. I mean he spoke the truth to them. He was concerned for them. And then the seventh thing here. Um, to be informed and vote for candidates and issues which to the best degree possible, uphold God's purpose for government. You know, and any more, this is such a gray area, it's not a Democratic or uh, Republican issue, okay? We should be voting for candidates on whatever side that uphold God's uh, purpose for government. Um, Titus 3.1 says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient, be ready for every good work. So we need to be aware of that, that, you know, because there are some people today that, you know, and I believe this, that politics has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. That's fine. But I think we also are called to understand that, you know what, because we live in this country, we have certain responsibility, especially as Christians, where it's clear in the Bible that it indicates that it is here, that we need to fulfill these things. And so we need to be aware of that. Okay. And so today we want to look at these under the heading of of being subject to the government. The first five verses here in chapter 13 basically covers that. And... uh, The first point here is under the purpose of authority. 
He says here in verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We went over that last week. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. And so the first point there is that government is by divine decree. And this is hard for us to believe sometimes. Because, you know, when you look at the government, you look at how inefficient it is and how, what a mess it is. All right. Um, God has put that in place for us. And not just here. You know, sometimes we get caught up in our own country and it's nothing wrong with being, you know, proud to be an American, all that kind of thing. I mean, that's wonderful. But this isn't the only country in the world. Okay, there's a lot of other countries. And, and they have different systems of government. And you know what? There are Christians in those countries. And guess what? The rules are the same. They need to be in subjection to their authorities. And you say, well, some of them are dictators. You know what? It's the way I look at it, some of these dictators have had a better handle on some of these principles we're going to look at than we do in our own country. And I'll tell you what I mean when I get to them. But it's, it's kind of, I'm not saying they're good people, they're evil people. But for whatever reason, God has put them in authority over those, those people. And if they're Christians in that country, they need to submit to that authority just as much as we need to do it here in this country because of the simple fact that government is by divine decree. God has decreed this. It says, for there is no authority except from God. I mean, stop and think about that. What is Paul saying? He's saying all the authority in your life is put there by the hand of God if you're a believer. What about my boss at work? Hey, you know what? That's an authority. You should respect your boss at work. And that's, that's part of the, the authority of God in your life right now if that's where you're working. Well, what about my husband? Well, if you're married and God has put you together and, and you're together, then you know what? That's, that's part of the authority in your life. If you're a child, well, you don't understand my parents. My parents, hey, you know what? They are your parents. And God has given them certain responsibilities. You may not agree with them all the time on things, but you're still called in the Bible to respect their authority. Well, it's no different for governing authority, for civil government. No matter what form it takes, it could be a total dictatorship. Doesn't matter. We're called to subject ourselves to that. Um, You know, you have to put it, think of it this way. No matter what kind of government you're thinking of, no human government at any time in history, at any place on the earth, among any people on the earth, at any level of society has ever existed or will ever exist apart from the sovereign authority of God. I mean, that kind of covers it all. Psalm 62 verse 11 tells us very clearly that all power belongs to God. And he just kind of doles it out as he sees fit. Everything in heaven on earth, including Satan, including his hosts, are subject to the authority and the sovereignty of our creator God. God sovereignly created, he absolutely controls the universe. With no exceptions, no limitations. And so you stop and you think, well, what about these different groups that control different power, 
you know, in society, things like that. You know what? They, no matter what it is, okay, they're under the sovereign hand of God. Paul's point here, basically, he's saying there's only one source of authority, and that is God. And because God is gracious and because God is all-knowing and for whatever reason, God has permitted even individuals like Satan himself to have a limited amount of power under his sovereign hand. I mean, when you stop and you think of that, that just makes your mind boggle. Why would God allow that? I don't know. But Satan does not have power to make men sin. But since the tragic day in the Garden of Eden, he was used, he basically used every means at his disposal to entice men to indulge their sinful impulses and cause them to fall into sin that way. He set it all up. But don't, don't blame your sin on, oh, the devil made me do it. That doesn't fly when it comes to Scripture. Um, Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. He's talking to Christians, by the way. He says, you formerly walked in the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. What's he saying? He's saying man's natural just propensity to sin is exploited by Satan's evil plans and desires and all kinds of things. 1 John 5.19, we saw this when we went through 1 John. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's under the sovereignty of God. And he is now at work in this world. I always thought it was interesting when Jesus was being tempted by Satan you remember that when Satan claimed to be able to give him all the kingdoms of the world remember that not at one time did Jesus says no I don't think you have that authority I don't think you can do that he didn't say that why because he could have (laughs) because it was granted to him by God himself and he didn't ask about his ability to give all this domain and its glory for it's been handed over to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. That's what he says. That's what Satan says in Luke 4, 6. Jesus didn't question him at all about that. And so when you stop and you think about it, you know, there's a bigger picture here, a bigger purpose at, at, at work here. It's, it's God's sovereign hand at work. And so we don't need to, that should help us sleep a little bit at night. You know, when you go through some of these world rulers, you know, you you think of um, people like Hitler, people like Stalin, all these Saddam Hussein. Uh, You you think of all these people. See, these are not exceptions to God's command to be subject to civil authority. And that's, that's a hard thing to process. And it was that way back in Paul's day at, at the same time. They didn't have a wonderful government. They were basically in subjection to the government that treated them harshly at times. There are no exceptions to this. Um, and by the way, I mean, I'll just say that 
You know, you hear a lot in America, well, we're a Christian nation. Look, if, if you still think we're a Christian nation, uh, you know, I got a, I got a piece of land I want to sell you. But, uh, you know, it, it's, we're, we're so far from that. You know, we are so far from that. It's, it's sad. And, you know, there, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. And I think that we need to, to realize that. That the civil government is just that. It's civil government. But the kingdom of God is far removed from these things. So we have to make sure that we are um, focusing on the right things. So the first point there is government is by divine decree. God is the ultimate authority. There's no exceptions. None at all. Second point there is resistance to government is rebellion against God. In other words, when you're resisting the government, you hear all these groups today, resist, resist, we're going to resist. And they're creating chaos. All right? And unfortunately, the government isn't doing its job in squelching the chaos. You know, we saw that in certain areas uh, when they had these riots and whatnot. You know, the one mayor said, well, I'm going to give, give the rioters room. Room to destroy or whatever they, room to express their whatever. And they burned down the whole town. Okay, that's not the role of government. That's not what they should have done. Well, don't they have a right of free speech? Sure, but they don't have a right to go out and burn down buildings and harm people. That's not what is allowed. So resistance to the government is rebellion against God himself. And I think we need to kind of be reminded about that. He says there, um, those who who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, verse 2, resists what God has appointed. So when we resist the government, because God has established the government, it's an institution of God himself. When you rebel against the government, you're by default rebelling against something that God has established. One commentator wrote this, the people of God then ought to consider resistance to the government under which they live as a very awful crime, even as resistance to God himself. And God takes rebellion, by the way, very seriously. Very seriously. All you have to do is read through the book of of Numbers. Um, You can see it there. Uh, God has chosen Moses, not only to be the human lawgiver there, but to be the the, the human leader of the, the nation of Israel. As he delivered them from Egypt led him through the wilderness to the promised land. The Lord also appointed Moses, his brother Aaron, to be a high priest. And during that journey, a group of about 250 people who were upset, led by Korah, Dathan, Abram, and and, uh, uh, on, it says this, it says, They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, this is them speaking to their leaders, for all the congregation are holy, Every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. Why do you exalt yourselves over the assembly of the Lord? Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to let us die in the wilderness? But you would also lord it over us. That's in in Numbers 16. 
And it tells us that the Lord was so angered down in verse 31, 36, 31 to 35 there, was so angered by the rebellion, it says that the ground that was under them split open. Listen to this. Fire came forth and the Lord from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Incredibly, the people learned nothing from all this. Okay, I mean, you see something like that. I mean, that's an incredible judgment. Can you imagine seeing the ground split open, fire come out, and wow, these malcontents are gone. Instead of drawing them back to God, it really uh, escalated their hatred for Moses and Aaron. In verse 41, it says, On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It's your fault. And in response to that defiant accusation, the Lord sent a deadly plague. Listen, that instantly killed about 14,700 people. Besides those who had died on the account of Korah, verse 49 says. And had Aaron not intervened by making atonement for the people, probably the entire congregation would have been annihilated. God takes rebellion, beloved, very, very seriously. Whether it's rebellion against the government, whether it's kids rebelling against their parents, whether it's spouses rebelling against each other, whether it's congregations rebelling against an eldership, it doesn't matter. God does not look lightly on rebellion because you have to go back to what he says. Every authority, there's no authority except from God. And so if God has placed you in the rank of authority under anybody, and we're all under some authority, you have to realize that, you know what? God's sovereign hand has that person over you for whatever reason. You may not like it. You may not understand it. But we're called to be subject to it. As long as it does not push us in a way that is dishonoring to the Lord. So we have to be reminded of that. The third point here under the principles of authority is that those who resist will be punished. Those who resist will be punished. Look at what it says in verse 2. And this sounds harsh. I mean, especially in our day and age. It says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur what? Judgment. And the idea is there, they will incur judgment immediately. He's talking about government judgment here. He's not talking about, you know, God necessarily judging. In a way, it is from God because God has put into subjection all these things. But it's important to understand that, you know what, he's talking here that, you know what, when you come to the governing authorities, if you're going to rebel against them, you're, you're going to be punished to some degree. See, this is the biblical form of government. This is what government should look like. Please understand, I'm not saying this is what our government in this country looks like because it's a far, far cry from this. <clears throat> but he's talking about those who have opposed civil government. And as the apostle mentions here a little later in verse 4, I think it is, he says, for he is, speaking of the, the civil government, he is God's servant for your good. I mean, isn't that amazing that he would call somebody in, in, in government, God's servant. And this is something that came from the Lord himself. 
And, and when you stop and you, you think of this whole idea of, of those who are resisting will be punished. Um, remember what Jesus did when Peter took out his sword. Remember when they tried to arrest Jesus and he took his sword out and he tried to cut the guy's head off, missed and got his ear? Um, what did Jesus say to him? He says, put your sword back into its place, Peter. He says, those who take up the sword shall what? Shall perish, perish by the sword. And, and Jesus affirmed that, you know what? No matter how noble the cause may be, beloved, government has the right to carry out execution even on someone who has, has been a murderer. Okay, capital punishment. I know that flies in the face of being politically correct and, and all that stuff, but that's what the role of the government is. And by the way, the Mosaic law prescribed many kinds of punishment. They weren't all just, you know, taking the person out. They were appropriate for the offense that they committed. For theft, the punishment included restitution. You had to pay, give back and, and pay back what you stole. And then returning what was stolen um, or pay, payment, at least of an equal value. Uh, if they had no money or property, which with to repay, the thief was required to work off his debt. And under the Mosaic Law, I'm not saying we're under the Mosaic Law, but under the Mosaic Law, something that's interesting was is punishment was always public. It was always made public. The offender was shamed before his family, his friends, and society. And it was done so in a, as a means of, of deterrence. It was also corporal. Um, there, was, there was lashes of whips, for example, you'd be lashed and you'd be done. You'd be, you'd be whipped in the public square. And that brought immediate physical and bodily pain. But it's also interesting when you study this out to realize that into to these lesser crimes, when they were just being punished, they weren't being executed. In the lesser crimes, the punishment was very short term. In other words, it was done quickly and it was, it was done short term. And I always remember, as a youth pastor, I'd tell parents, look, you know, when your child does something wrong, teenagers do something wrong, the whole idea that you're going to be grounded for six months, that's just not a good idea. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, two weeks later, they don't even remember what they did half the time, and they're still experiencing, you know, it's a lot better to execute some, some severe punishment right up front, and hopefully they learn their lesson and then give them a second chance and give them some grace. You know, but the whole idea of you're grounded for, you know, eight weeks or whatever. Because the kid knows after two weeks it's all going to go back to normal anyway. I mean, I very seldom had parents carry out these, these, you know, lifelong threatening groundings and everything else. So you just be smart about that. But see, they didn't do that then. They, they made it public. <clears throat> it, was, um, it was always... Uh, short term, the punishment was, and by that I mean, you know what? If you killed somebody, then you were killed. Okay. If, if you stole something, you were expected to repay or to work to repay immediately. You weren't given a grace period. Um, once the penalty was paid, then the offender was free to pursue the life again till they messed up again. And so, you know, there was punishment without a lot of uh, uh, pity toward the criminals. And a couple objectives here under the, the Mosaic law. 
is this. First of all, and they're on the back page of your outline there, it was ministered as a matter of justice, of appropriate retribution for a crime or other evil committed. So it was appropriate for the crime. So, in other words, if you murdered somebody, well, then, you know, your hand was, your, your life was going to be expected in return. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Deuteronomy 19.21. Um, this was actually given by God to prevent overpunishment. You know, in other words, if someone stole something, you could just couldn't take them out and kill them. All right? They had to repay. If they couldn't repay, then if they were severe, whatever, then, you know, some more severe punishment would be. But it was, it was to prevent overpunishment, not underpunishment. But it was done as a matter of justice. It was done as a matter of justice. Secondly, it was to be a deterrent to the crime. It, you know, today our, 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 our whole criminal system is such a mess. Because you have these people committing crimes and they know they're going to either get away with it or they're going to get off scot-free or at best they may have to spend some time in, you know, uh, some prison somewhere and eat donuts and watch color TV all day. I mean, it's just crazy, you know, and, and work out with weight so they can get nice and strong so they can really do somebody in the next time they get out. I mean, it's a bizarre system that we have. And that's not really a, a good thing. It's not, a, it's not really a deterrent. I mean, for people that are bent on doing crime, I mean, you know, you see it all the time. They're just like, yeah, whatever, I'll go back. Um, and then when you have someone who comes along and tries to put in something that, that makes their stay in prison a little unpleasant, then the whole society rebels and goes, oh, that's horrible. How could you treat these people this way? So you have to keep it in perspective. I mean, they are human beings. We do have to be respectful of them. But at the same time, you know, uh, we, we just have to not make prison something that's inviting. Bible says, then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. That's in Deuteronomy 17. In other words, the whole idea of punishment was to be a deterrent. And some of the countries in our world today who are, are very safe when it comes to crime, they do just this. I mean, you, you don't mess around. I remember being in a couple of countries and, you know, in, I don't know if it was in Dubai or I think it was in Dubai. The taxi cab driver told me, hey, if you ever lose anything, just call the police or call the cab company, whatever, and they'll have it for you. I'm like, yeah, right. He goes like, oh, no, I'm serious. We don't steal, especially from tourists here, <laughs> because there's severe punishment. Um, thirdly, it was, it was done impartially. Okay, and this is another area where our system fails, right? I mean, we see all the time where the rich and the famous, they get away with everything. If, if you or I would do something like what they've done, man, we'd be locked up for the rest of our lives. So it's, it's not that way today, but this is the, the, the mosaic, the law, the way it was. It was to be carried out impartially. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, it says, you're, it doesn't matter even if they're, you're members of your own family, doesn't matter about their wealth, their social, the position in the community. It says your brother, your mother's son, or your, your son, or your daughter, your wife, you cherish, or your friend who is, uh, who is as your own soul. The law was the law. That's what it was to be. And then fourthly here, it was to be done without delay. 
And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. I mean, Deuteronomy 25.2 says, If the wicked man deserves to be beaten, then the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. In other words, it, it just seems so, economically, it seems such a better way to do things. You know, because, man, it's done, it's over with, the guy's paid his thing, okay, go, go free. You don't have to house him, you don't have to do all those things. Um, most punishment was administered, even in Paul's day, on the spot. Immediately after the sentence was declared. Now, I know, I mean, you know, you want to make sure you don't want to, you know, execute somebody or punish somebody for something that wasn't done. So then you have the lawyers get involved. I get that. But trust me, we could cut this this process down years if we would just use a little bit of this common sense. Um, Principle of a speedy trial punishment is found in most constitutions of of modern democracies today but unfortunately it's not observed you know you can if you have enough lawyers and enough money you can put off trials long 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 time ecclesiastes 8 11 says because the sentence against an evil deed is not quickly executed therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil do you hear that because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly It motivates the hearts of the sons of men among them who are given fully to do evil. In other words, hey, nothing happened to this guy. Why can't I go do this? That's the society we live in. Without delay. Fifthly, it provided for pardon and rehabilitation. Um, Obviously, without, with the exception of if you were executed, the Old Testament provided a way for pardoning and for rehabilitating the person. Uh, it says that the guilty person could be beaten 40 times, but no more. Lest he beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother be degraded in your eyes. That's in Deuteronomy 25.3. So it wasn't just a free-for-all, let's punish these guys. I mean, there were principles of morality installed here. Uh, criminals were not to be permanently stigmatized. Once an offender paid his penalty, he was accepted back into society as a respectable citizen. Okay? Um, You know, we could learn so much if we just applied some of these things. Well, the next point here, the purpose of authority. um, It tells us in verses 3 and 4. The purpose of authority, first of all, Government serves to restrain evil. He says there in verse 3, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You know, if you've ever been around someone who's a lawbreaker, who's someone who breaks the law in a consistent way, um, if you've ever spent time with them, the one thing you realize very quickly about their personality is that they're very suspect of everybody. They just can't relax. They're constantly looking over their shoulder. They're just, you know, they're, why? Because they know somebody's coming for them because they've probably done something wrong. And they're just conditioned to that. And see, it says here, the rulers are not there to, to cause fear for good behavior. If you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to worry about, right? Um, you can sleep well at night. But Paul here is, is speaking in terms where he says rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Um, I mean, when you think of, of Paul himself, he had suffered a great deal 
at the hands of rulers. And, and it was done in an abusive way uh, for no other reason than his good behavior. I mean, he hadn't done anything wrong. But back in that day, you have to realize that, you know what? When you came out against the government and, and the way they were set up, if you spoke against them in any way, which he did on occasion, um, they would come down on you. And, and that's, it's almost, you think of uh, in, the, in the Muslim faith, you know, either you're full on with them or you're their enemy. There's no gray area at all. And you see that the way they take out this, this horrible um, revenge on people who are not in their camp, and even some that are, but not up some of the radical ones that are not, you know, they're really radicalized, they're terrorists. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, I think the everyday Muslim is not that way. When you speak to them, I've spoken to many Muslims, they're very kind, generous people. I mean, they're a little mixed up in their theology, clearly, and they have to come to Christ. But on the other hand, um, you have a segment of that population that is very radicalized. And they would kill their own people if they didn't live up to what they thought was right or wrong. And so uh, the first thing here is that government serves to restrain evil. It serves to restrain evil. If you're not doing anything wrong, you really don't have a whole lot to worry about. And the problem with our country today is the government is not doing their job. That's why people are free to go and do whatever they want to do. And uh, for no cause sometimes. Um, And they just want to rebel and destroy things and burn things down. And everybody says, well, we're just going to give them space to do it. Uh, That's not what we should be doing. But it also serves to promote good, Paul says. It doesn't just, you know, restrain evil, but it also serves to promote good. Can you imagine our country with no government? With no authorities. I mean, there's always some form of authority. You know, you, you think of, uh, you know, even crazy, crazy movies that have been out, you know, where it's like the whole world's blown up and, you know, there's some people left or something and they create their own kind of the way that they deal with things, you know. Uh, you know, there has to be some form of government. And what's, what's interesting is when you think if there was no government, you know, who's going to... Who are you going to go to when someone comes and says, you know what, I like your car and I'm going to take it. <laughs> what are you going to do? You can't call the police. There's no government. There's no wrong or right. There's nothing. Okay. And so government plays a role to deter evil and promote good. Um, and good behavior is essential for any nation's preservation when you stop and think about it. Without it, what happens? We just destruct. And we've seen that happening more and more. Um, And unfortunately, you know, the idea of imprisonment and and putting people in prison, uh, that's not really how they did it back then. I mean, they didn't have massive prisons with, you know, thousands of people put in there. I mean, usually the people were able to work and even Paul, I mean, he had visitors and things like that. Yeah, he was in in prison, but it's not the kind of prison that we think of today. Um, And so, you know, these these prisons we have today are really, you could almost say they're breeding grounds for more crime. You know, it's just not a good system, but that's the system we have. And uh, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be put in prison. I'm just saying we need to kind of really dial down and look at that. 
Uh, there's a lot of bad things that go on in there, and is that really promoting good in people? Um, I think it would be better just to kind of um, have the consequences for crime be severe and be quick and have it done and over with, and you get a second chance and you do it again, well, then you're going to have a little more severe uh, punishment. But So it's promote good, restrain evil. And then last thing there is rulers are empowered by God to inflict punishment. Uh, rulers are empowered by God to inflict punishment. Now, when you stop and, and think about that, that's not something that, uh, you know, we really <laughs> uh, talk about a lot today. Um, he says in verse 4, he says, well, he's a servant of God for your good. All right, there's a lot of good that comes out of government. I mean, if, if, if someone breaks into my house, I can call the authorities and I don't have to pay them anything. I don't have to do anything. You know, they'll, they'll come and they'll do an investigation. Hopefully the person will be arrested. Maybe I'll get my property back. Maybe I won't. But at least I have somebody to go to. Okay? And so they're there for your good. And then it says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So this is what government is. You know, you don't take a sword and spank somebody with it. The last time I checked, the sword is an instrument of death. The sword is something that you would use in severe, as a severe penalty for something. And so the one who is doing evil continually needs to be afraid because the government wields a sword and he'll protect those who are doing good with it. And so you have to stop and think about those kind of things. Um, but the punishment that is inflicted, you know, it, when you stop and you, you, you realize that, you know what, today we live in a society that we just really don't believe in this. I mean, the idea of punishment is to lock these guys up in a, in a cell and just let them rot, I guess. I don't know. And, and that's not really uh, very effective as our society has proved. So I don't claim to have the answers here, but I think that we need to definitely look at a different way of doing things. Um, But it's important to realize that the government has that authority by God to inflict punishment is sometimes severe. Um, You know, the problem with something like the death penalty that so many people are against, and how could you be a Christian before before the death penalty? Because it's biblical. Okay, it's very biblical. There's, there's nothing wrong with the death penalty. I think it's, it's something that if it was carried out correctly would be a um, uh, kind of a restraint of evil because people wouldn't want to die, so they wouldn't do that. The problem today is that it, it takes 20-some years for this sentence to be carried out sometimes, and, and the evildoers know that, so they're not even afraid of that anymore. Um, so you have to be... Be, be understanding about that. Well, how is the power of the sword to be used? It defends citizens from enemies outside and evildoers within. That's what our government is called to do. Defend us from enemies outside and from evildoers within. It's also to establish, exercise, and maintain justice. And how does it do that? It rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior. It's, it's rather simple. Um, in verse 5, government, the problem with authority, unfortunately, is government should be obeyed for conscience sake. It says there in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
And so when you stop and you, you think about the government that we have today, it's a far cry from what we've been reading about this morning. And so, you know, we definitely need to be in prayer for our government and leading authorities. Um, but government's proper use of power, government cannot develop morality. Morality comes from revealed religion, comes from Christ. All right, so we can't look to the government to expect it to change the, the, the moral fabric of our society. And that's unfortunately what the church has been doing for the last several years and decades, really. And it, it's not working. You know, if we're going to see a change in our society, it's going to have to come one heart at a time, one life at a time. And that's where we get involved and we go out in society and we share with the lost and, and those who have yet to come to Christ the life-giving, gracious, loving message of Christ, how you can have a relationship with God through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross when you turn to him and repent of your sins and come to him for salvation. He will save you. He'll transform you. And then you can have a proper relationship with God, with others, and even with the governing authorities. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just give us grace in the country in which we live, Lord. Sometimes it's rather frustrating, the whole political process, everything that's involved. And yet, Lord, we know that these men and women have been put in authority over us. And so we pray that we will be in subject to them. And Lord, as long as it does not hinder or cause us to do things that are unbiblical or uh, dishonoring to Christ. And even when that is the case, Lord, I pray that we would make our plea and yet willingly bear the consequences. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, give us grace. And we pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. Uh, We pray that as they even respond to these floods and hurricanes that are going on now, Lord, uh, without a government, there wouldn't be a response. Um, And so, Lord, we thank you for the response that is being made. And we pray for these dear people in Texas, Louisiana, and Florida, and Georgia and all the area that would be hit by this hurricane, Lord, that you would just uh, uh, continue to be gracious to them and allow the governing authorities to do their work of protecting uh, lives and property. And, Father, we just pray that you would uh, give us a good day today. Thank you for your grace. pray that you bless our fellowship time as well over in the, the hall afterwards. In Jesus' precious name, amen.